Hi, I'm Angela Lucier, a professional public speaker, seven-time author, two-time TEDx speaker, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. And I'm Dr. Jolie Hamilton, a research psychologist, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and ASEC certified sex educator. Together, we're the hosts of Claim the Stage, a podcast about speaking and sisterhood. If you've been a fan, you know I've been doing this show solo, and it's been all about public speaking for years. Well, that all changes now. Well, you're still talking about speaking on stage, but now we're also going to focus on the three things that you need to make an impact, your voice, confidence, and sisterhood. The show is a training ground to go from dreaming to creating. Right. And we'll still be doing interviews with expert guests. Plus, you'll also get more personal stories and insights from us as well. I'm really excited to see where this goes. Me too. And slightly freaked out. Yeah, me too. Welcome to the next chapter of Clay on the Stage. All of a sudden there's a hair in my eye. I can't see anything. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm not drinking water or, or taking any pills. So look at me. <laughs> it's like nothing it's happened this time. <laughs> until I hit record. And then all of a sudden there was an, there's a hair just poking me right in the eye. So yeah, I think the record button has special powers. It does. Everything goes haywire. Yeah. It has, it has causality. <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited for today's episode. Cause we're talking about a subject that has been near and dear to my life uh, since forever the inner good girl. This is our kickoff to the inner good girl series and talking about people pleasing and owing people things that you don't owe them and asking for what you want. And these are all subjects that I've heard over and over and over again as themes in speeches and speaker sisterhood meetings, themes in my own life. And I'm interested to hear what all of our guests have to say about it because they all have expertise, experience. They have created programs and books about the subject. And I think it's one that we can all relate to. Although when you and I talk about it, it doesn't seem like this has been <laughs> as big of an issue for you as it's been for me. It's not, it's not though. I, I agree that I've sat in a lot of speaker sisterhood meetings and, and heard references around this. I think that it's not that it doesn't resonate at all because when people talk about the like the the notion of people pleasing i i feel a little distance from the subject but then when people describe the actions of it and how it actually shows up in their life i'm like okay i get that but it hasn't been a an overwhelming theme in my life i think cuz i'm more of a pain in the ass like i'm <laughs> i i'm I have a reputation for standing up for myself. Like going back to when I was little, when I was five, I got a pair of cowboy boots and I weighed like 28 pounds when I was five years old. So these cowboy boots were like baby cowboy boots and they had little pointy toes. And I wore them every day to school because there was a bully on the school bus. So if he bullied me, I kicked him in the shins. I was like not three feet tall. So I think I've just always been a bit rough and tumble and maybe that's protected me a little bit from this particular part of life. Yeah, I guess. Maybe. Or well, either that or it's hiding. And I'm just like not totally aware of it yet, which that's definitely possible. It is possible. Well, a couple of weeks ago, you and I had determined our core values or core operating 
places yeah, like our were different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like mine was that I'm a nice person and you're an honest person. Oh yeah. And I would never identify with the, the sentence. <laughs> I am a nice person. <laughs> it makes me laugh just to say it out loud. <laughs> and I think being a nice person means you want to give people what they want. And yeah, I, I've I, never wanted that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like being honest isn't always being nice. Cause I'm not going to tell the person what they want to hear. And that's a huge conflict. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to get better at that. And like one, one thing I've noticed is that I've gotten a lot better at setting boundaries that I know the other person isn't really going to like, but that feels like the right thing to do for me. And it is so empowering, even though leading up to stating the boundary is like the most terrifying thing ever after the boundary is set, it feels so powerful. And I feel so proud of myself because it wasn't the nice thing. It was the, the, the thing that I needed. And right. that was something that was not part of my life for a very long time. Yeah. I, when I hear you talk about like trying to reconcile being a nice person with being somebody who can set boundaries, I think, oh yeah, I hear that in my work every single day. I hear it all the time. And I have just I've come at life from sort of the opposite position where I have had to learn how to be, um, how to deliver my honest um, thoughts, feelings, boundaries, all of those things with, with a, a, a gentleness that suits the situation. And so it's just like, it, yeah, it's like coming at the same problem from two very, very different places. Yeah. This reminds me of our conversation about femininity and our, <laughs> our backgrounds and you being small and loud and me being tall and quiet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And one thing I, that I notice is improving for me is that when I used to set boundaries, I would feel a ton of guilt afterwards. Like mm -hmm. I did something wrong. I wasn't doing what that person wanted me to do. I messed up. They're not going to like me anymore. Why did I do that? Why did I um, create a ripple in our relationship, but I know that I'm getting better at being less of a people pleaser because I don't have that conversation with myself anymore. The conversation is now good job. You did it. You did it. Nice job. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So, I, so you're standing up for yourself it, and I hear that you've actually changed the inner conversation. Like that's big Yeah. because a lot of people get the first part, but the, but the inner conversation doesn't change. Yeah. And so it makes setting boundaries even more difficult because you know, the aftermath is going to be harder than the yeah. actual conversation of having that, the boundary set. So I, I really didn't look forward to it before because I knew I was going to go in a mental boxing match with myself as soon as it was over. But even if the person responded well, yeah, you could, you would still, yeah, that's rough. That yeah. Really rough. It was just, my thought was, well, now they hate me. <laughs> This is intense, but recently my mom moved in and she loves to fill her fridge, uh, to the top, like no room for any, like you couldn't even put a jelly bean in there. There's so much stuff. <laughs> and I said to her, yeah, mom, picture of you balancing the jelly bean into it. <laughs> no, no room. Gonna have to eat this one. <laughs> yeah. And I told her you can have half of the refrigerator. You have the whole right side. If any of your stuff goes on my side and the, the, the shelves are actually divided in half. So you can see the clear middle. If anything goes on my half of the fridge, I can eat it or throw it away. Are we clear on that? And she said, yep. And that was, I told her that about a month ago, nothing has ended up on my side of the fridge. Ooh, and yeah, that's I a big deal. It was a big deal. Cause 
I didn't want to be a jerk because it is my fridge. And so I was like, I'm giving you 50%. I think that's fair. Please respect that. And she has. And I know in the past, what I would have done is I wouldn't have said anything and all of her stuff would have ended up on my side, or I wouldn't have even set up a side. I would have just let her take over the whole fridge. And then every time I opened the fridge, I would have been really angry because I couldn't find anything. And I would just keep building resentment and I would just keep feeling like, she's taking over. She's not respecting me. Why doesn't she care? Doesn't she realize I have food for myself and my son and she's only one. I would do a whole thing in my head yeah. and it would create, um, this, you know, yeah, the resentment and distance and anger that doesn't need to be there. And that's a yeah. whole thing for me. <laughs> resentment is such poison in relationships. You know, I, I mean, like the Gottmans talk about resentment building up into contempt in marriage, right? John and, and Julie Gottman do. But every relationship, if resentment builds up, and that's that feels like a perfect tie-in, the, the resentment tied to the people pleasing. If you if you can recognize the resentment building up, then you have some leverage for yourself. Because I hear you saying, like, well, the resentment's gonna suck. It's gonna be destructive. And so the only option then is to decide to give up this, this desire to be, to, to be able to imagine yourself as nice at all costs, right? Because you are nice. Like, you don't have to try to be nice. You are nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's not, like, I don't know. Who thinks Angela's a jerk? Like, that's not a, that's not a question. No. <laughs> Angela's a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> So you don't have to like try to, so by setting the boundary, you like, you cut that whole conversation off. You probably saved yourself like five hours that week. Oh, every week. Yeah. So practical. <laughs> so practical. <laughs> I also set that boundary with her in the house. Cause I, I like to have sort of a minimalist approach, especially having a kid. I don't want to have extra clutter and things that he can get into all the time, but my mom loves to fill every corner with something, a box, a bag, a plant, something. And I told her, if you start putting things in the corners, I'm going to bring it upstairs and put it on your bed. And I'm okay, serious yeah. about it. All the corners are empty. She has not put a single thing. I love it. Corners. Well, and that would, that would have made a really interesting picture if, <laughs> if like, if her bed just had like a potted plant and some bags and some boxes <laughs> stacked up and she's just like sleeping around it. Yeah. It would, it would make an interesting picture to show her later. Like, okay, so this is what happened. So you made a very, I like the tangible repercussions that you offered. Yeah. It's you a are visual. mom of a toddler and those toddler skills translate to all of our relationships. Absolutely. <laughs> I actually, I, I kind of appreciate that when, when somebody recognizes something that's a big like a big problem for me, just like a, a habit or like, or a real complex that I have and they can help me draw a boundary that strong. Like, oh, this is really where the line is. Okay, cool. I can respond to that. And I don't have to, I don't have to guess because if it's something really hard like that, like if you like stuff in every space, I grew up with parents like that. Yeah. That's, that's hard. So I imagine that she's trying to overcome something that's like really compelling to her. Mm-hmm. So giving her a real, like honest and clear repercussion. That sounds like a gift, honestly. It's a new gift and I love it. So if you ever need to do that for me, please feel free. I will. I will just accept that. Okay. And whatever it is, you can just put it on my bed. You can like bring it over, drop it off. Like whatever it is. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Like random, like you can drop off like too many texts. You can like print them out, just drop them off my desk. Something like that. You know, like 
no, no, no. This is a hard line. <laughs> okay. So I'll be like, if you send me more than 150 texts a day, I'm going to print them out and put them on your bed. Yes. I like that. <laughs> and, and I think though, I want to pass on those animal face texts. Those, that's don't my count. New, those don't count. Those can't count. That's, that's my new love language. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. I, I'm By here. the way, those are called memojis. Memojis. I am yeah. here for the memojis. Yeah. I'm sure we're the last people on the planet to learn about these. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> but they're new to us and they're bringing us a lot of joy. The other night I was trying to write all the details out for an upcoming course. And I was sort of agonizing over it because I was tired and I had to get it done. And you and Ken sent me probably 20 <laughs> memojis <laughs> as an owl and a robot and a drag. And it was like, odd. and you guys were just cracking me up and keeping me company for that whole thing. It was great. It was so much fun. Like we were cracking each other up and it was so funny for me to point my phone at him. And then he'd panic. Like he didn't know what to say. I'm like, you're but you're an owl right now. Like, what's the difference? Who cares? You can say anything. And he would panic. It was like performance anxiety over how do I really embody the robot? Like, yeah. I need to, like, he's a, he's clearly a method actor. Mm -hmm. He really needed to get into it. <laughs> really well, fun. So sometime I'll videotape him trying to do a memoji just okay. for the pleasure of it. Cause it's really like, you can see him getting into character. It's really something. It. He's committed to it. If okay. anyone hasn't used the memojis, I know that on the iPhone 12, they are there, but I don't know if it's, on, it must be on some of the older ones. It's just I a setting. I can't remember whether I had it before or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, it's just a setting in text. Like it's just like the fifth button over or something where yeah, the you, GIFs would be and stuff. Yeah. You basically become a cartoon character with, and it's your voice with a, an animated animal face. Like an, with, with an expression making animal face. That's yeah. That matches your expressions. You can make the tongue stick out on your little fox. And that <laughs> makes me very happy. I, yeah. I feel like that we have years of fun coming our way. We, yes, yeah. totally. And so I knew this was a thing because my daughter sent me one right after she got her phone. And yet, but I couldn't figure it out because I'm, I'm old and like, I, I didn't even try to figure it out. So I feel like I feel like this was a little a little gift dropped into my life to remind yeah. me that even now in my elder in my elderhood I'm so so old I can still figure out how to fun, have fun with my phone. Yeah. I'm not that old, but it felt really you're right like I was the last person in the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, getting back to today's guest Caroline Garnett McGraw, she was she's the author of a book called You Don't Owe Anyone. And I love, we each got a chance to read through her book. We got an advanced copy. It comes out on April 20th. And the chapters are all titled under one specific subject that so many people struggle with. So she has a chapter on, you don't owe anyone a savior. You don't owe anyone a brave face. You don't owe anyone your forgiveness. You don't owe anyone an explanation. So these are all things as I was reading through the table of contents, I was like, oh, I can relate to all of these. And it was great reading through her book because she shared stories about her own life, overcoming a lot of these desires to owe people things that they don't, they didn't deserve to be owed. And as we interviewed her, she got to tell more of her stories of why that is. And I just, I, I'm really excited for this episode because I think just just introducing the subject of not owing something to somebody is is groundbreaking. <laughs> it is. It is. It and it's it's a really strong statement um, that I struggled with when I first saw the title of the book. I I genuinely struggled. I was like, well, 
I believe in interconnectedness. I believe that, you know, com- uh, like, like truly diving into community is the, the only way out of the mess we're in. So do I, can I get in line with this? Like, does it make sense? But as I read the chapters and, and especially the titles, <clears throat> what I noticed was that it, it wasn't a general sense of you don't owe anyone anything. It, that's like, that's like the big bold like claim. But in fact, it was very specific. It was like, you don't owe someone a piece of yourself or you don't owe them your, your like this, you don't owe them what they want from you. Yeah. But even though we are all connected. So I I was surprised to see how, how relatable it was because the, the boldness of the title had me a little back on my, on my heels. Like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Even though I want, I wanted to, I kind of wanted to be like, no, 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 we're all connected. We owe each other. But the more I read, the more convinced I was that, the stuff that she, Caroline was talking about is it's so important to get a hold of what's yours to give in your time, on your time frame, and what is actually our community life. What is the thing that we owe to each other? And she was differentiating so clearly in the book that that made it easier for me to get into it and really, really, really enjoy it and relate to it and find a lot of stuff I needed to hear myself, even though I don't think of myself as a people pleaser. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember her saying that her husband was the one who originally gave her the idea for the title and the concept. And that was what changed everything for her was a guy reminding her, you don't owe anyone anything. It's like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Didn't. Yeah. It's it's so, of course, of course. (laughs) Right. <laughs> I know. And that that was really the catalyst to realizing, oh yeah, I don't have to do any of that. And so, so many women feel like they have to justify their existence right. and justify their actions every day. And over the weekend, I dropped my phone as I was driving to your house. I was I was getting in the car and my phone fell on the driveway and smashed and I the screen no longer worked. So I didn't have access to my phone for almost 48 hours. And in that 48 hours, I kept thinking to myself, oh no, what if someone's texting me and I'm not responding to them and they think I'm ignoring them. And when I get my phone back, I should text all the people who normally text me and tell them, oh, sorry, I didn't get back to you. And I was like, God, like I am now taking something that is my own sort of problem that I need to deal with. And I'm, I'm making it something that I need to now like justify to all these other people (laughs) who may or may not have texted me. And when my phone, when I did activate my new phone on Monday, I couldn't see any texts that came through because I'm just not great about updating all my stuff. And so I didn't know if anyone texted me or not. And I was like, I'm not going to text anybody. If it's really that important, they can just text me again and say, Hey, did you get that? Yeah. I mean, that, that falls in line with the idea of like, are you showing up in your life in the way you want to, like, you don't drop people. You're like, you you pay attention. So if somebody can't have one missed text from you, in fact, I did have a missed text in that time. And I knew you didn't have your phone, but, and like, that's, that is such a simple thing to just offer someone grace the grace of, you know, a missed text or a, a dropped ball. It, that's the kindness that we, we all should just be out there practicing, right? Like, yeah. yeah. So 
You only needed to let yourself off the hook because the people in your life aren't going to do that to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was just interesting to notice how quickly I went from, I need to solve this problem for myself to now I need to take care of everybody else who I may be hurting as a result of not having my phone. (laughs) Okay. Let me just, um, take a step back. Yeah. Take a step back. Cause I'm sure there aren't 40 people pacing around their house right now saying, why haven't I received a text back from her? Where is she? What does she do? Who does she think she is? So that was an interesting um, observation. It feels like it's in line with the, um, you know, nobody's thinking about you. I yeah. mean, it's it's a perverse pleasure to, to realize, oh, nobody cares. That's yeah. actually great. Thank goodness. I'm going to go back to bed. That's right. awesome. it's like we want people to care and yet here we are all living our own lives it's okay to remember that yeah most likely we're all just busy doing our stuff I that I mean that's how I get on stage I'm like right most people are just thinking about their own life yeah do you think that part of that is a narcissistic kind of response okay I yes and but let's let's get clear let's differentiate because there's stuff that we do from our own narcissistic wounding And then there's like pathological narcissistic patterns that like take over someone's life. So like narcissistic wounding, like the, just the habit, having the habits of centering ourselves because we didn't get what we needed, you know, like our cup wasn't filled, whether that was when we were little or in the patterns of our relationships and, and then just becoming this sort of in this habit of thinking of ourselves at the center of the universe, isn't the same thing as being like, malignantly narcissistic. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I have to say that because I, that word gets tossed around so much. Yeah. I think that, oh, you know what? Self-absorbed. How about that? Like, it's not, it's that sense of self-absorbedness where we're just like, we forget that we're not the center of the universe. That's a normal thing to fall into. Um, And I think you kind of almost have to swing that way, right? If you're going to move away from people pleasing and being like a super good girl and like doing all the things that everybody wants, then the pendulum's probably going to swing over to the other side where you're being selfish, where you're being, um, where you're being self-absorbed. And that feels like an important part of the, the process because otherwise, how are you going to find a, a, a midpoint where you actually feel satisfied by what you're putting out, what you're expecting of yourself, what you're giving to other people and what you what you do actually want to owe people. Hmm. Yeah. And I think as, as you're talking about it, I'm realizing my concern about the texts wasn't they're going to be worried about me. My concern was I'm worried about them thinking I'm ignoring them and that I don't like them and that our friendship is on the line. (laughs) (laughs) And if I, because I'm not responding the way I normally would, and I don't want to add any extra stress to their life, having to worry if I'm now, if our relationship status has changed. So So what if you replace yourself in the center of that? And you're like, is, is it you like that? That feels like a reaction to self-abandonment. Like if you practice if you, if you practice just out of poor, you know, like of poor self-care hygiene, you practice like abandoning yourself for others, then you might imagine that other people feel that way. Like put, put that out there on them, project that stuff out there. But, um, 
not everybody would feel that way. And the people who do hopefully are doing their work or out like out there, like digging into that. And what does it mean to not have somebody respond? Because you don't owe anyone a hundred percent of the, of you. Like you, you can't show up in life like that. You can yeah. show up a hundred percent when you show up, but yeah, your phone's going to fall on the driveway sometimes. Yeah. Or in the toilet. Yeah. Stuff happens. <laughs> yeah. These, these are just great teachers. I think these moments where yeah. I start to see, wow, there's still so much work to do to try and unravel a lot of this. So yeah. I look at these moments and instead of being mad at myself because the inner good girl is alive and well, it's like, how can I learn from this and take, take a step back and say, why am I treating myself this way? I didn't mean to drop my phone. And also <laughs> like, I don't need to be worried about how people are responding to not getting a response from me in six hours or whatever. So, yeah. Um, I know other inner and other people with inner good girls can relate to that, that struggle for sure. So let's see, do we have quotes this week we want to share? Oh, I do have a quote. Oh, good. Interesting. I, so I, I just picked it. It was the one on top. Um, I think it might lead in. Um, it's from a book called Pregnant Darkness by Monica Wickman, who is a depth psychologist and um, psychotherapist. Okay, I'm going to read the quote. You tell me if you think it, it lines up. We can become lost in our own inner deserts without water or contact with the divine if we stray for long from the path of the heart. Oh, I think we've done this one before. Did we? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. So it wants to be heard again. She yeah. keeps floating to the top. The box isn't even that big. Why is she floating to the top? <laughs> Can you read it again? Because I remember this one because I had to have you read it a second time because I needed. That's so funny. Yeah. We can become lost in our own inner deserts without water or contact with the divine if we stray for long from the path of the heart. Well, yeah. Then that's the perfect quote for today's episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Clearly, it just needed to be heard again. Because I do think people pleasing is so much about abandoning yourself yeah. and and your heart and trying to do what other others want for, and instead of what you want. Yeah, trying to trying to fill your bucket like by by like loading up on people pleasing. Everyone I have ever heard of talk about this is clear about it. So why are we still fighting this battle? What is it that we have to let go of or move on from? I'm glad we're having this conversation because we keep talking about it, but it's really hard to move on from. Yeah. What about you? Do you have a quote today? I do have a quote and it happens to be from a really brilliant woman, you. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> do you know which one it is? I think I do. I bet it's on a post-it note. It is. It happens to be right here. <laughs> it's a great post-it note. I'm going to put it. There we go. We'll use this in the. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true. <laughs> so the quote for anyone who can't see it's it. Very highbrow, it's, it's very highbrow. It's very highbrow. This one. This is like not like mine, which was light and fluffy. <laughs> yeah. Some of you may not be able to follow like this one. You're going to have to unpack this one. Really? <laughs> the quote is. The shit belongs to the asshole by Julie Hamilton. <laughs> That's it. That's the quote. Just, just sit with that. The shit belongs to the asshole. And you said this sort of, 
I don't think you really meant for it to be as meaningful as it was. Maybe you did. I no, I think it was it was an honest response. You yeah. were dealing with a whole bunch of shit um delivered to you from someone who I would call an asshole. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so you have to deal with the shit, but the shit belongs to the asshole. It's not you. It's <laughs> it, it's right there in front of you. Yeah. And if you say that quote with the peep memoji, the poop memoji, it's even better. It is. It is. So, yeah. <laughs> so for anyone who hears that and thinks, oh, that is such a great reminder, write on a post-it, hang it near your computer. Mine's hanging right two inches away from me. I've been looking at it for the last couple of days. I'm really <laughs> enjoying it. I think when we have to deal with people who just aren't taking responsibility for their shit, that's, that can be the definition of asshole. Oh yeah. Right and there. people pleasers, we tend to take on other people's shit because we think we need to solve this for them. We have to fix this. We need to make things better. How can I make them feel okay about this? And it's actually not our job to do that. Other people's shit is their shit. So we have to be able to separate from it. And I've gotten better at it, but I'm always, it's always, every instance is a new one where I have to go, okay, this isn't mine. Yeah. And there's new places for it to pop up all over the place, at home, at work, everywhere. Yeah. What's bringing you joy this week or pleasure? Okay. So besides the memojis, which definitely, that was big pleasure. In fact, I'm going to go back to them right after this. Um, I got up this morning to go for a walk and it was like 6.20, 6.30 maybe. And the birds sounded exactly like it was spring. They, they were totally making springtime noises, which means we're right around the corner from actual spring. So that's it. I'm like, I'm set. That was magnificent. Awesome. And then I was out for a long walk. It was like an hour and 20 minutes and they just kept at it the whole time. They were so springy. Wow. That's nice. I haven't heard the birds yet, but I'll have to get up early. Take an early walk. It was good. good. Awesome. What about you? What's bringing you joy or pleasure? Well, mine relates to your quote about the shit belonging to the asshole and realizing that I do have a toxic relationship in my life that needed to be cut out. And it wasn't something I could do easily because there was a contractual obligation and uh, I cut it out yesterday. Yes. And I set, I set a boundary. I spoke up for myself and I did it in a way that was respectful and clear. And it felt so freeing and it felt so mature and uh, like it felt like a a huge act of self-care because it's been stressing me out for weeks, which, you know, cause I've called you about it like a hundred times. <laughs> yeah. It's been super stressful and it keeps being freshly stressful. So yeah. Every time I think I got it under control, it would just end up being stressful again. So cutting that out of my life yesterday was really exciting. And I just felt this weight lifted off of me and handling it the way I did felt like something to celebrate in itself because I did not back down and I didn't try to caretake them or make it seem like they had no responsibility. I kind of like just called it what it was. And that brought me so much joy, just the whole, the whole thing. So, um, I'm going to give myself time to fully take that in and celebrate in some way this week and just like remind myself that that's a huge win. That's a huge win. Because you also recognized your strengths, your um, your capacity. Like, it, you didn't make this about some failing on your part. 
you were like, nope, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing more than my share of this, the the work in this particular relationship. And so return to sender. That's huge. That's enormous. Yeah. yeah. Anything in your fuck it bucket you want to share? Um, yeah. Okay. So I took this out and I, I, I just put it in there yesterday and it sounds really simple. I think we probably all put this in our fuck it buckets at some point, but I think I, I'm just going to have to keep writing and I'm post notes and jamming it in there. Um, it's about staying on course. So I, I love five-year plans. I love them, but the way my life is working right now, it just doesn't make sense to have a five-year plan. Like I can have a five-year vision, but as far as having an actual like action step plan, I just don't have the necessary data to do that. So so I jammed this in the fuck it bucket, staying on course, because I need to be able to get off course and to keep changing directions and pivoting. And it feels okay, but only just okay. So I'm going to try to let go of that some more. Just fuck it. It's going to be fine. <laughs> what are you learning about pivoting and changing and so I think I, I'm learning that other people, one, other people aren't paying as close attention to what I'm doing as I think they are. So that's useful. Um, so people may not even notice some of the pivots. They're like, didn't you always do that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, and then another thing is that the pivot that feels enormous to me, that or like the, the change of direction that feels enormous may actually be smaller than it feels in the moment. Like once I make the change, sometimes it's very obvious, like, oh, I actually have been doing this all along. So like for an example, I, shifting my focus from building um, like group programs to shifting to like allowing myself to just work one-on-one -on -one with people. I have been working one-on-one -on -one with people, but I hadn't been centering it. So for, it, it's fine. I'm learning that in fact, that shift, it's not like disruptive. It's not shocking for anyone else. And it's not even shocking to my system, though it felt like it when I started like writing down. So I'm going to just chill out and say, fuck it. It'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. Do you want to talk more about what you're working on right now? So, yeah, it's weird to be working on this. I'm So I've been putting together a real, a really clear process so that I can, and so I can really outline exactly what it is I do with people in one-to-one -one work. Um, and I've been working on that for six months um, because all of that process stuff, you must find this, it lives inside of you. Like you can teach anyone the nuts and bolts of public speaking, but then laying it out very clearly so that it's easy to relay to someone. That's a different part of the work. So I've been getting clearer and clearer, refining that. So I had it in book form and now I'm putting it into um, two forms. One is like a, a weekly one-to-one -one process that people can walk through with me. And the other is um, a private intensive where we go like super deep dive and we get right into the shit, the good kind, the mucky kind. <laughs> The good kind, the kind where we like alchemically change it into gold. Um, the kind with glitter in it. The, the glitter shit. Yes, <laughs> that kind. Um, so what I had to do was was really like pull out of myself. And, and it's been really, really a lot of work. I'm pulling out of myself all the stuff that I intuitively do with people and outlining it, like get making it into a repeatable process so that there's no time wasted so that we're really that we're 
cutting away anything that's superfluous. And so that um, it just eases my burden. Like I I love being in service to people. I love, love working with people on their relationship stuff, especially when their relationship stuff feels, when people have been terrified to bring their like oddball relationship junk to somebody. Like a lot of people won't even talk about their relationships really with their therapists because they're like, I don't want to talk about my weird sex stuff. I don't want to talk about how I actually show up. So like naming it and saying, oh, that's what I do. I I will provide the container that is like stress-free because I'm going to walk you through the process of hauling all that glitter shit out. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Um, so that's what I've been doing. And I think it's going to be a few more weeks of, of really refining it, but it's, it's taken form. It exists now. So hurrah. Yeah. And the great thing is once you teach it once, you can refine it again and then refine it again. That's it. I'm learning that from you all the time. I, that's probably where my perfectionism shows up the most is I want to nail my teaching the first go out, but it's not realistic and it's not what has happened in my life, but I I get it in my head that I need to. And I've watched you refine and make really amazing products out of the, all, all of those revisions, each, each iteration. Yeah. That's it. It's not just a revision. It's an iteration. And I love that. Yeah. I've taught speaking school seven times and I in- improve it every single time. Yeah. And it's, it's fun. It's actually great to see, oh, there's a weak spot here. You know, it's, yeah. like, I can build a better house next time. That's it. That's exactly where I am. I feel like, I, so I, I've been working with this same material for a while and all of a sudden it became obvious that not only is my process clearer, but now I know exactly who I want to serve. And um, like the next book is ready to, pop out. Like I can feel it like, Oh, it's there because it's that next, that next iteration. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. I love that. Do you also want to talk and you can just say no and we can move on, but do you also want to talk about your personal brand and your showing more of your, my weirdness? weirdness? (laughs) Okay. I will. So the, the, I, I guess that's really at the heart of it. My my big shift this week, I cannot believe it's taken me this long to do this. <laughs> I decided that I'm for weirdos. <laughs> and there are people out there going, how did you not know this? <laughs> because that part is clear to all of us. I have, when you were teaching speaking school and I happened to be in it and you inspired me to write Project Relationship, it was great, but I tried I tried to make sure that it was it was like approachable for a really wide swath of people. And I think I succeeded in that and it was great. But then there's the rest of my work, like how I show up with people. And I noticed that I I put to the side the fact that I'm a kinky, queer, polyamorous, um, like mom of seven. Like I, I put all this, like all these things that stand out about me kind of just off to the side. I didn't really mention it. And it's a kind of a bummer to do that because I'm best at helping people be more themselves. Like the more weird you are weird in that sense of like being exactly the genius that you are, no matter how odd that is to other people, the more you do that, the better you'll show up in your relationships, the more your business will work and the more clear and legible you'll be to other people. I know that, but I, and I, and I've been teaching it to other people and not doing it because I've been scared. Yeah. What were you afraid of? Oh, 
That's a tough one. I, I'm just going to say it. I'm afraid of other people. I'm afraid of other women. I'm other women doing what or saying what? I am afraid of other women judging me as um, trying to be special. Like trying to be special. You know what I mean? Like putting on a show of specialness. Oh, so and if you spe- you're average, then they can't do that? Yeah. Like, and I don't even know what average is. Like, what I mean, does that even mean? Yeah. That but, might be the wrong word. I don't know. What were you trying to appear as just less special? <laughs> yeah. So there's a phrase in, I think it's in Australia called cutting down the poppies. Um, oh. It's, it's a phrase for like any, uh, like the poppy that stands out, like you, you cut that one down so that the poppies form this like flat, you know, like this beautiful flat surface of, of gorgeous waving red flower. Okay. Um, and so I heard that, um, when I was at Pacifica and I thought, oh, that is my experience. I have stood out in every room I've been in, like for as long as I can remember and have been told that that is too much. And, um, I was just in a class, (laughs) I was in a class this week and a trained therapist told me I was too much. And I was like, did you just say that in front of other people? And she did. <sighs> and yeah, deep exhale. Like, <sighs> I'm going to, so I, I'm reframing that as I'm big. Like I, I'm a, I am a lot and that's not a bad thing. I'm really good at, at showing other people that at, at, at making space for other people to be huge and weird and loud and, and, or even like really weird in their quiet or they're small or they're timid. Like I'm good at that. And I've been terrible at holding space for myself being that way. Um, and that's been a process of hiding. I've been, I've been hiding for a decade and I can't hide and have a visibility strategy. Exactly. That's awkward. That's the weird thing about visibility. It makes you show up. Yeah. I guess we know why I didn't choose that as my word of the year. I just put it, I put the strategy in place, but I never actually wrote it down because then I would have had to notice like, oh, you won't be able to hide anymore. Mm-hmm. Do you think that making uh, podcast guesting and podcasting in general, part of one of your big initiatives for this year, do you think that was one way that you were going to get yourself to face this fear you had in a way that was not as direct as just coming out and saying, okay, I'm weird, but you know, as like a, a process of getting there? I think it is part of the process, but also um, I needed to prove it to myself and to other people. Like I show up, I talk. And if you talk to me for more than 15 minutes, you're likely to hear some stuff that you're like, wait, what did she just say? <laughs> I do kind of bring a strangeness to any conversation. And so podcasting is a great way to make that known. Like, so I don't feel like I have to prove anything about being special, but it's just becoming obvious to me and to others. Like, oh, she's not talking about the same exact things everybody's talking about. Um, I'm not, I am not reading from a script. I have no course on how to build the right sales copy. I have no idea what exactly it is that I'm selling some days because really what it is, is I'm being more me than ever. Do it. Okay. I have have a thought. I have a thought. This just let me know if this is on base. Okay. Okay. Do you think that by making yourself small and making yourself more palatable, 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 
<laughs> not a platypus. <laughs> yeah, not a platypus. More palatable is a, your version of people pleasing. I think you're right. I think it is. Oh my God, we found it. You we do, found do it. people pleasing. I do. It just, <laughs> it looks different. It, it's not for me about being kind, but definitely about fitting in somehow. Being a chameleon. Yes. Yep. You're, and I'm good at that. I, I can do it, but it's made, it's made for a pretty gross period of time where I'm like, okay, I fit in, but I also, I like, I barely knew how to make friends yeah, because I, I was struggling so much to show up as actually me. Mm-hmm. I was trying to show up as whatever I thought they wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, people pleasing can take on a lot of different forms. It can show up in a lot of different ways. And the fact that honesty is your operating place, you can, you can sort of be a chameleon and still be honest. You're just not showing everything. It's almost like you're just hiding pieces, but it's the parts you're showing are real. They're just not the whole picture. That's it. I got really, really good at not lying because lying just makes my, like I break out in hives. It, it doesn't work for me, but only showing one face, yeah. only showing one facet of myself in any given room. Um, and if I started to overwhelm people, like instantly drawing back in and pulling back to like a, 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 a center place. And um, yeah, I think I'm talking too much out loud in public spaces now for that to really work. So, oh, well, yeah. I think I'm free of it. <laughs> I think you're talking the perfect amount. Yeah. Every it's, time. It's not quiet. It's not. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad we're recording this conversation. Now we have actual audio documentation of you recognizing that you are a people pleaser. Cause up until this point, you would say you it's were true. not I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. It is. I have so much trouble. Cause I'm just like, I'm not nice. I'm not like, I have trouble. I have honed the ability to be kind, but that's not the same thing. No. Yeah. There's yeah. a there's a song in the musical, the Sondheim musical, Into the Woods. You're not good, you're not bad, you're just nice. Oh. I love that line. I'm like, yeah, that's not me. But <laughs> turns out I'm doing another thing that's mm-hmm. not helpful. So I I hereby revoke my claim to being um, whatever the situation needs me to be, and just be me. I love it. Okay. This is good. Okay. What about you? Well, I wish my, my revelations were so, (laughs) were so big this week, but I guess I'm, I'm in the thick of things of just creating constantly. When I look at my calendar at the beginning of each week, I think I have to make five new things this week. It's like every week I'm just in serious maker mode. And as much as I love that, it requires so much energy, thought time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a thinker anyway. Like if I go for a walk, I, I'm just so deep in thought. I'm surprised I haven't gotten hit by a car. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, an eagle could land on my head and I would just be like, so for that course next week, what should I, introverted thinking is a little dangerous. It's a little (laughs) bit dangerous. (laughs) <laughs> so I, for right now, I have a new pop-up talk. This is something I just started last month. 
uh, last month's was about how to build confidence to speak on camera. And this new one is all about how to create and find speaking engagements online. And this is a great topic because so many public speakers have had canceled engagements because we're not meeting in person. And so they've lost a huge revenue stream and they've also lost the ability to do something they love. And I know from standing on stages how empowering and energizing it feels to talk to an audience and then to now be stuck in a room in my house talking through a screen. It doesn't quite have the same appeal, but it's as close as we can get right now. And there is a revenue stream out there that is available, but we have to know how to find those engagements or build our own, like I'm doing with my pop-up talks. This is a workshop that I'm, I'm creating myself. I'm marketing myself. Um, you know, the registration fees come to my company. It's not that I'm building it for another client. So I want to be able to teach other people how to do that. And I'm relaunching speaking school in April as a course that teaches you how to take all the things you taught on stage and bring it to an online course. And it's a different skill set, even though it's content creation, it's in a totally different format. So this pop-up talk that's coming out next Wednesday is the 60 minute kind of short, quick and dirty version of how to create and find those engagements as an introduction to the bigger five-week course on how to really get down and do all of this and sort through all the stuff. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to teaching that and, and kind of putting it all out there because I think it's a question that a lot of people have right now that there isn't a lot of information on. So um, I'm going to show people how I've been doing that. Yeah. And you've done it so many different ways. You've you've activated all of your your teacher skills, your speaking skills, and just that that well, that introverted thinking we were just talking about where you you go in and you create whole structures for how things can line up and work. And um, that is, that's a gift to be able to pass that on. Like here, shortcuts, do it yeah. this way. Like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's, yeah, that's great. I love it. Thanks. So what we're reading this week uh, you introduced me to a really fascinating woman that you had the pleasure of connecting with a couple of weeks ago. And we both got her book called Selfish. I I was reading it this morning. Oh, you were? I was. I was reading it last night a little bit before bed. And we're going to have her on the show to talk about her book. Her name is Nikita Ren Thigpen. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. I believe you did. Nikita is pretty spectacular. And I'm just a little bit into the book now. But my conversations with her already have been sort of revolutionizing my sense of just uh, both take the pause and show up. It, it's, it's that it's um it's a magic combination. I mean, the, the subtitle of the book permission to pause, live, love, and laugh your way to joy is spot on. Like that's on brand for me. I love it. Um, yeah. but also like she's been there. She's, she's done that. She, she is living her own words in every way. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited to learn more about her life story, which seems to be weaved throughout the book Yeah, and how she had uh, kind of arrived at this writing of this awesome topic, selfish. Another topic that people pleasers struggle with. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, I love that she just titled the book that because even just carrying it around, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting just to have that word right in front of me all the time. Yeah fascinating. Mm-hmm. wonder that's how that's going to work on my psyche. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else you want to share before I 
get into uh, a little more information about today's guest? No, I was going to share about Selfish. So you went right there, taking right. care of things. All You're right. Good. You're just that good. Well, Carolyn Garnett McGraw is an author, speaker, and coach for recovering perfectionists. And she's the author of You Don't Owe Anyone and the creator of A Wish Come Clear, a popular blog devoted to trading perfectionism for possibility, as well as several online interview series. Oh, wow. I just put iMessage on my computer and now it's making all kinds of (laughs) (laughs) dinging noises. I got to work that out. Uh, She's a two-time TEDx speaker, and her essays have been featured on the Huffington Post, Momastery, and Woman for One. Caroline lives in Florence, Alabama with her family, and she has created a special link on her website just for us, which has information about her book. It has special downloads and more of her uh, her awesome advice. That was a spectacular spectacular offer. People should click that link. Yes. It was a big offer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a wishcomeclear.com slash claim the stage. And I'll put the link in the show notes so you can just click right on that and find out more about her and her, her amazing offerings. So without further ado, we'll jump into the interview with Caroline Garnett McGraw. Garnett McGraw, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm particularly excited to talk to you because people pleasing is like at my core. And as I was reading your book, I just kept hearing myself in basically every sentence thinking, wow, I think I could have written this book. And (laughs) not all of your personal stories, but so much about what you've learned in life and the things that you are now helping your clients with. I feel like it is such a valuable set of um, instructions for how to get past people pleasing and and perfectionism and live a life from a place of your own personal joy and values. So before we get too far into the book, I would love for you to tell us your story and how you became a person who would write a book like this. Yes, the short answer is the hard way by <laughs> making all of the mistakes <laughs> outlined therein. Um, But thank you for that wonderful introduction. And I'm so glad that the book is resonating with you. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer from the time when I was in the first grade, six years old. That story is in the book. But our teacher said, you know, we are going to make hardcover books. We're going to be like real authors. And I'm going to put your picture on the back cover. And I just remember the, the feeling in that moment of, what could be cooler than that to make a book, you know? And so if we want to go really far back, that's where it starts for me with that moment of wonder, that spark of what if I could make a book someday? So fast forward many, many, many years, of course. And I start writing a book that was originally a memoir. Then through my agent, through my publisher, it becomes this very personal, personal development book And I think of it as this hybrid between the two genres, because I, on one hand, I love personal development. That is my entire bookshelf is, you know, here's how to make your life better or happier or whatever. Um, But it drives me crazy when authors don't get really personal and they don't share 
well, what did that actually look like? You know, it's all well and good to talk about overcoming people pleasing, but how does that actually play out? Like, I want to see the movie. I want to actually see this roll out in somebody's life and see the before and the after. And so that was really the goal and the intention with this book is to introduce some overarching principles, but also really let people see how these play out. And I don't just do the after, there's plenty of before, there's plenty of, here's what it looks like when you say yes, when you mean no, and you feel super resentful and horrible and awful and have panic attacks, and that's how that feels. And then here's how you gradually start shifting away from that. So I'm really glad to hear, well, I'm sorry to hear that you understand the struggle, but I'm glad to hear that it connected for you. Yeah, I love the story you shared at the very beginning about receiving some Facebook messages and the resulting conversation and what you did with that. Can you share that story? You bet. Yes. So a number of years ago, I got a series of Facebook message requests from an old friend who I hadn't seen or talked to in years. The last time we had had any significant interaction, he had been drunk. He had made a pass at me. I didn't know if he remembered that interaction. So there was a high level of awkwardness here. And the only thing the message, the messages said were, I miss you. I miss you. I really miss you. No, like, Hey, it's been a while or nothing like that. Just, I miss you. I miss you. I really miss you. And I felt very conflicted. What do I do with this? On one hand, I did feel that knee jerk response of, Oh, I just, I don't want to be involved. I, whatever is going on right now, I don't want to be involved. But then this other tape kicked in, which went something like, what if he's really struggling? What if this is a cry for help? What if, you know, what if I'm being, you know, hard hearted or something and not compassionate and not reaching back. So I had these conflicting possibilities going in my mind and I wasn't sure what to do in the moment. And as I share in the book, it's often really obvious what another person ought to do in in a given scenario, but when it's you and it's your feelings and it's your past and it's people that, you know, it feels very complicated and tangled up. So I went to ask my husband what he thought about it which is kind of a cop-out because I had a feeling I knew what he was going to say about this, which is, are you kidding me? Don't even think about responding to that. Yeah. But that's actually not what he said. He said something more profound. Listen to the whole story and then just looked me in the eye and said, you don't owe anyone an interaction. And it was like the gates of my mind just sort of blew open. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just said, whoa, wait, repeat that. And he did. And I said, okay. I need to quote you on that. May I write about it? Because that's really, really important. I could feel it was important. And I could feel that he had pinpointed this limiting belief that had been operating in my life for decades and that I was seeing all around me, that everybody, almost everybody that I knew walked around with the belief that if somebody reaches out to you, you owe it to them to respond. You owe them that interaction. Then I started thinking about, well, how does that belief get us into trouble? Around the same time, I saw the pilot episode of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and it's exaggerated to the point of parody, but they talk about how they're interviewing these women who were trapped underground in a bunker with a cult leader, and they're asking, you know, how did you end up here? And the one woman talks about, well, I ran into Reverend so-and-so in the parking lot, and he asked me for a favor, and I, I didn't want to say no, and so here I am. 
In other words, because I thought I owed him an interaction, I spent 10 years underground trapped in a bunker. And of course, that's an exaggeration, but I just started thinking about like, what is the cost of this belief? And that's where the book arose from. Right. So you wrote an article on the Huffington Post that went viral, right? Yes. Yes. It was on the front page. It got shared a whole bunch and then it became a TEDx talk and now it's a book. Yeah. So it really validated the idea that you're not the only person who feels this way and it may be an epidemic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I was shocked. I was, I mean, of course, if it's on the front page, it's going to get more visibility than, than most, but it was shared over a hundred thousand times just on the English language site. And then it got shared on the Italian site and just across multiple different countries and cultures, it went viral. So to me, as you said, that was a very good road test of like, people are connecting with this. That probably made it easier to sell the book too, right? When your your agent had it and said, well, a couple of people read, read the article first. It's actually ironic because in hindsight, I can't believe I didn't see this sooner, but the original book I was pitching was not focused on, you don't know anyone. Like that wasn't the title. That wasn't the concept. I somehow did not think hey, you had a post go viral. Maybe you should use that as the framework for your book. So it had a different title, different concept, all of that. And it wasn't until I connected with my editor, um, Lil Copan of Broadleaf Books, and she was like, you should take this thing you've already written and why don't you start with that? And I was like, hello, (laughs) that's an amazing idea. So it took, sometimes it takes a, a really helpful partner on your team to point out the obvious to you. Um, so yes, that's how it ended up, but I, I had a different concept going into the, to the book. I was curious as I was reading the book, how long it took you to really fully embody the, the idea that you don't owe anyone anything. Was it while you were writing the book that you, or are you still working on that? Because it seems like it's a lifelong commitment. (laughs) A hundred percent still working on it. Yes. Yes. My closest friends and I will often quote it to each other and they will point it out for me if I am. It's, I mean, it's a blind spot. If you've walked around believing that for 20, 30 years, there are going to be times where it becomes invisible to you again. And you need somebody to say, Hey, you don't owe anyone X, Y, Z. And I'm like, Oh, right now I remember. Okay. Okay. I got it. Um, so yes, it is for sure an ongoing process. I, I, I did wrestle with that of at what point are you, do you know enough to share about it? But then I realized, okay, that's the perfectionism talking. And if I wait until, until I'm fully complete with this lesson, my life is probably going to be over. So let's, let's write the book now. That's great advice. Cause so much of our audience is, um, you know, healers, authors, coaches, consultants, leaders, people who are in the helping arts and need to be able to share their perspective, even if they haven't 100% arrived at the expert status. So I'm glad that you're saying that to give everyone else permission that they don't have to know everything in order to share something about it. Would you agree with that, Jolie? I sure would. I don't know where I would have learned that or who I might have learned that from. I don't know who that could be. Angela served that exact purpose for me, Caroline, when I was writing my book, like the very first seeds of it, I'm like, I'm talking all these ideas out, but you need an outsider's perspective. She's like, you're an entrepreneur who works with relationships. What if you wrote a book about that? Oh, okay. That's helpful. (laughs) That's helpful. Those are the two things I, okay. What 
I am super curious about though, because I have a very different background and come at people pleasing from a very different place. And it's not the same for me, but I, okay. So I would not call myself a people pleaser, but, um, which so yay, one less thing to work on, except it just means I have 12 other horrible things, but you have a child and I have kids and Angela, you have a kid. How are you parenting your child differently from how you are parenting? Because I read some of the stories like this grew right out of your experience of being raised by people who you clearly love, but Mm -hmm. you still wound up with these big burdens. How are you doing it differently so that you don't repeat that? Yeah, I love that you asked that. And I agree with you. It's you can be in an environment where everyone loves each other and has the very best of intentions and still walk away with a whole bunch of baggage around people pleasing and perfectionism and all of that. Um, and that's part of why I, I did feel like it was the time to share my story because I had made that transition of, okay, I was a daughter. Now I am a mother, as you said, and I'm thinking about what do I want to pass on to my kid what do I want to offer to her that is different from, you know, from how I was raised? Um, the first thing that comes to mind that feels it's small, but it feels very significant to me is that she's only 19 months old, but when she has a big feeling, when she can't get what she wants in the moment, or, you know, I want this thing that is dangerous for me. And it's my job as her parent to be like, no, thank you, ma'am. Like uh, you're not having that. Um, and she cries and she wails and she, you know, really does it up. And I'll just say to her, you can have all of your big feelings. You can have them. I won't try and take them away from you. And you can just let them, you can feel them. It's okay. I'm right here. And just be very present to her while she expresses the emotion fully, not giving in, but just being like, yeah, you can have it. I'm not going to try and talk you out of it. I'm not going to try and tell you, no, don't be sad. Don't be mad. Don't be this. That to me, that is one of the most insidious um, things that I see happening almost everywhere. This, this negation of don't feel that way. Don't have that perception. Don't do that. And so that's something my husband and I are very committed to. Like she gets to have her own experience and her own perspective. And I'm not going to tell her, don't think that, or don't feel that because that's her right as a human to have thoughts and to have feelings and to not have those negated. Um, doesn't mean I'm going to give in, you know, but I'm going to be a compassionate witness to that. And I share in the book, you know, I, I wanted the book to be less of an instruction manual and more of a compassionate witness, more of someone who's been through it, watching you as you work through your stuff and you process your stuff. Um, because I find that so powerful. I mean, as a, as a coach, yes, but also as a friend, just being willing to listen, ask good questions, sometimes the less you say, the better. (laughs) And people just need, need that to work it out for themselves. So that's just one example of something I'm doing. And I think that's a great example. She's little. So Mm -hmm. you, you, I mean, but I think that's, so I have a house full of teenagers, seven of them, and it's still about allowing them to have their feelings. It's not like that never changes. That's a, that's an epic piece of wisdom to just hold on to. So I, and I, it's not like it's easy. So I (laughs) applaud you for sticking with it because it's not easy. And I tie that directly to that desire to say like, we'll be a good girl. And I remember banning Mm -hmm. that word Mm -hmm. when we had our first child, like we banned that phrase 
And yet it was everywhere. Like grandparents yes. would say it yes. all the time and other teachers and people who were in their life, my first child, especially in her life. And was that like that phrase? I mean, you were the way you, the way that your book unfolds, I feel the good girl, like just brewing oh, yeah. out of it. Like, so what did you, what did you do with that phrase? Be a good girl. Like there's an in-between here between where like, you're a person who's people-pleasing entirely and this person who can write this book and coach people and reach. How did you, like, where's the moment where you're like, oh, I hear it. I really hear it. Was it the moment when your husband said you don't owe anyone an interaction or was there something else that happened inside of you before that? Yeah, that is a great, great question. I'll speak to the part about our daughter and hearing that first, like hearing that from everyone else because I so relate to that. It's like once you're tuned in, you constantly hear people making identity statements about little kids of like, oh, you're so good. You're so strong. You're so this, you're so that. And it's, I think we're doing it out of a desire to praise, but I was just reading in one of Tal Ben-Shahar's books. He's a, a speaker and a former professor at Harvard. And he talks about this idea that when his children were growing up, he also had that mindset of like, well, you praise them and you tell them that they're all these good things. You're good. You're this, you're that. But then he learned about the difference between fixed mindset and growth mindset. And the idea with fixed mindset is paradoxically, if you sometimes tell a kid very often, oh, you're so smart, you're so smart it sets them up to be very afraid to fail because it compromises that identity that they've been clinging to of, oh no, I'm good. I can't do that because I'm good. I can't fail because I'm smart. But if you conversely say something to them, such as you worked really hard on that, or you did a really good job, or I'm proud of you for not giving up, something like that. You're pointing to their behavior rather than their identity so that's another thing I, I work to integrate. <laughs> of deep course. consent culture. That's like mm. tying that to some of the previous interviews we've done. Like that is consent culture. That's that's bringing home the message that they get to identify themselves, and right. and we do. So I get to identify myself. Nobody can put that a label on me. I know yeah. I asked you two questions at once, but I'm like, no, I can go <laughs> off on that. That's awesome. I love it. Right. No, that could be a whole other conversation. And I was so inspired when I read you know, Tal Ben-Shahar's account. And I thought, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to not put an identity on her in that way, because I saw how harmful it was when I was given and then took on identities like that. So to answer your second question, um, I actually think the moment for me was when I started doing inner child work, when I started doing dialogues with the little girl that I was, And I started recognizing, oh, wow, she has been carrying around this identity of the good girl. Like this has been running the show for her for so long. And I give people moments in the book where I take them back. And this is what it looked like when I actually had a conversation with my seven-year-old self about what was going on for her. So it really started to sink in and change for me when I talked to the person that I was. So you identified as a good girl for a long time. How would you identify today? What would you call yourself? <laughs> and it's okay if you don't, if you just are like, I'm me. I don't yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I've been, I think sometimes you have to, you have to go to one extreme. Like the for so long, the good girl was my identity. 
I've needed to swing a little bit to the side of like, oh, I'm kind of a rebel, actually. I didn't realize that about myself. So I'm I'm embracing a little bit more of the rebel identity. Um, one of my uh, people that I look up to, you know, mentors in spirit, Rob Bell, um, I did a workshop with him and I told him about my book and he said, your book is way more subversive than you think it is. And so are you. And I was like, I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to sit with that for a little while. And I mean, ultimately, as you imply, I think once you get off the pendulum of I'm good, I'm a rebel, I'm this, it's like, you kind of land somewhere in the middle of, oh, I'm just a human being just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. I love that. So as I was mentioning, a lot of our listeners are helpers in some way. And you say in the book that we show up as problem solvers, yet in our secret hearts, we fear that we are the problem. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with you is the shaming mantra in our minds. Can you talk more about that? Because I think that would probably be a helpful description or, you know, a good place to start with a lot of this for the people listening. Yeah. The imagery that really helped me, and I'll preface this by saying, I heard this in an addiction recovery workshop. So I'm in a room with folks who, you know, have been using heroin and benzos and all these hard drugs, which I, I don't have experience with personally. I've certainly had alcohol to excess, which I talk about in the book, but never went into the hard drug scene. And it was fascinating to me because I had really connected with these people in the workshop. And I was sort of puzzled by that because I thought on the surface, our lives look so different. I've led this fairly straight and narrow, fairly good girl life. And these, a lot of these folks have done what would society would consider the opposite. You know, they've gone to multiple rehabs, they're here, all of this stuff. But then I realized when I saw this graphic, which was very simple, it was like in the center of the circle, there is a wounding, there is a pain, there is unresolved trauma. And then out of that, there was two arrows. One arrow goes to over-functioning, which is people-pleasing, trying to be the hero, martyring yourself, trying to rescue everybody else and overperforming, basically. And then the other arrow goes to underperforming, which is, you know, you're the one who needs all the help. You're the one who's, who's always in trouble and is, you know, in trouble with the law, whatever. And the illustration, again, very, very simple, but the point that was being made was it all comes from the same original pain, the same original question of what's wrong with me? Am I broken? Is there something messed up about the way I think and the way I feel? They're just two different responses to the same pain. And when I was able to see that, it was like, oh, no wonder I feel like these are my people because these are people who are ready to start working with that pain. And so more and more, that's, that's where I feel like that connection and that kindred spirit. It's like, it might show up totally differently for you, but if you're willing to go underneath and go into the deep stuff, yeah, let's talk. What would you recommend for someone who's willing to go into that pain to try and address the the root cause of people pleasing? Yeah. I mean, my book is very much written for that person. Like that was my hope and my intention of, okay, if you don't have anywhere else to start, start here. But 
in, I can only speak for myself. I can only speak for what helped me. I would say it was being able to be a part of getting more support than I thought I needed. (laughs) So for me, that looked like counseling that looked like the addiction treatment program that I talked about earlier, even though I, I didn't have a drug addiction, but it was like, I got an opportunity to go do it. And I said, yes, um, it was getting really good coaching. It was deciding I'm going to get support for myself around this, even though on the surface, I don't look like I had to wrestle with that. Of like, I don't look like someone who would need this much, <laughs> this much help and this much support. Um, but being willing to see that as just another coping mechanism of like, that's another old identity. Oh, I'm the one who, I'm the one who helps. I don't need help. You don't get that's, support. Right. You don't you get you don't support. Deser- yeah. And then you go to, I don't deserve support. And now you're back in that same spot. It's brutal. It's that's brutal. Yeah. Oh. Well, I, I have spent, yeah, <laughs> 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 I've spent the last year, you know, in therapy and going to Codependence Anonymous and doing a ton of journaling and inner child work and trying to like really get to the bottom of all of this. So reading your book at this time in a way feels like I can relate to you. And I also can see how far I've come because reading your stories, I'm like, I remember being like this. And I'm and like you said, it is a lifetime sort of commitment and practice, but it also is something that there is hope for to grow from and change from if you commit to doing the type of work you're talking about. So um, kudos to you for doing it because I know the road and it's a hard one, (laughs) (laughs) but it's worth it. And it's so great that you're passing along the things you're learning to your daughter too, because that just means so much. And your daughter will be so grateful when she grows up and sees, you know, the hard work you've done to make yourself a better parent. Um, One of the things that you talk about in the book too, that I really enjoyed was the guilt gauge. Can you talk about what that is and what, what we can learn from it? Yes. Yes. So I talk about that in a chapter where my husband and I are going to a store to buy Christmas ornaments for our tree. And I have this sort of guilt attack at the thought of spending $11 on these ornaments, which someone, you might hear that and just think, wait, what, why? But there's a whole bunch of background with the church I grew up in and programming around Christmas is pagan and it's evil and it's materialistic. And I had all these old triggers around Christmas decorations and ornaments. So that's part of why it came up for me. But I recognized as I was trying to buy these ornaments that, wow, I have this overly responsive guilt gauge and it goes off even when I'm not doing something that I currently consider wrong, (laughs) I did not presently consider it immoral to spend $11 that, you know, my husband and I had agreed. We had a used Christmas tree. I mean, we were being very frugal about it. This was like our one thing that we were doing to actually spend money on it. Um, And I was recognizing I've been so trapped by this. I've been trapped by, if I feel guilty, then I shouldn't do it but are there other ways to handle the guilt? And so in that chapter, I talk about, okay, if your guilt gauge is overly responsive, if it goes off the minute anybody's disappointed in you, if it goes off the minute you try and spend money on yourself, if it goes off the minute you take 15 minutes alone for yourself away from your kids, then how can you begin the work of recalibrating? 
And it is work, but it's also possible. It is very possible to train yourself not to just obey the guilt without questioning it. You can start identifying the thoughts. You can start taking care of the feelings. There's a lot that you can do if your guilt gauge is out of whack. I think that's a really helpful tool and just um, a good for, for your self-awareness, like as a starting point for exploration, because it comes up a lot with your people pleaser. Guilt is like just part of every day. Yeah. <laughs> I see it. I'm, I'm so fascinated because I'm hearing that guilt gauge and I'm like, I can see it in, like I can, I can visualize it. I'm loving that. And I'm, I can see my husband. I'm like, oh, that's his thing. Like that instant guilt, like, wow. And it, it rules so much of his life. And we've been talking a lot lately about how big, how, how that adds into the shame story. And then you get caught in the shame story. And I love that you talk so frankly about when you were, when you were feeling like you weren't showing up as somebody wanted you to, or you, you were letting someone down the, the moments of recognition in there were so, so it's, it's all these individual sentences. And there was one that you wrote that was just caught my attention so hard. You were writing about having, um, gone out when you were sick and maybe you shouldn't have, but whatever, it didn't matter whether you should have, you wrote, I couldn't be who she wanted me to be tonight. I'm on my own. And my gut just mm. dropped there was something so visceral in the idea of being guilty for having even the need of simply being cared for when you're ill. Like what's mm. more basic and primal than just needing to, some simple care and to be left in that space. And at the same time, I hear in that sentence that you, you recognize that you were on your own. You needed to care about yourself. Right. So like it's, it feels like there's balance in that recognition. I'm really appreciating that. What would you say now about your ability to balance? Because the people pleasing doesn't just go away, right? It goes underground. Where does it yes. pop up? It, does it still pop up <laughs> in little places? Oh, it does. I catch myself sort of overdoing parenting sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as an example, I've, I've been practicing letting our daughter see me lying down which sounds very simple and very basic, but we realized, <laughs> we realized my husband does this enough that she doesn't feel freaked out at it. But if she sees me lie down, she thinks there's a problem and she oh, yeah. comes over to me and I'm like, oh gosh, this is so, this stuff runs so deep, this conditioning that like mom can't take a break, mom can't rest. And so I'm actively paying attention to that and you know, giving her little glimpses of, I'm just going to rest for a minute. That's all. I'll get back up. It's okay. It's fine. Yeah. Um, but I love That's that. Brilliant. You point oh, thank you. It's thank brilliant you. because the image is Psyche's first language. So like now you're giving her mm. that lesson imagistically, not like not a lesson you're showing her. And that's so that's such an easy place to implant that idea of mom's rest moms and yeah. moms rest sometimes even when you need them. And so sometimes somebody else will be providing your care or sometimes I'll need to rest and you'll, as, as she gets older, you'll self-soothe or you'll get yourself a bowl of cereal or whatever it is. Like it becomes different things as they grow. It's such a, it, that's a micro moment, but I'm loving it. I want to celebrate it big time. That's huge. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad that I had a good friend telling me she has a toddler of a similar age. And she told me about sometimes I'll 
you know, lie down and read while my toddler is there. And I was like, that's possible. That's even a thing you can do. So we're working up to that. That's, that's like the dream. That's the goal. I told, I, I tell people all the time. I taught all my kids. I read books all the time. I read hundreds and hundreds of books while I had my children and I would mm. breastfeed them and I would read books. And the only rule was they couldn't touch the book. That's yes. it. It's the only yes. rule. Like it. So if you do off, you go off the nipple. And the number of people, I've shocked thousands of women with that simple mm-hmm. story, shocked them. I'm like, but I wanted to be able to read. I wanted to be able to study. And I had my kids young and like forever, like lots of them. So it was the only option from my perspective, but I can see how what you're saying, I can see how there were women all around me saying, but their needs come first. And there's that right. balance of like, yeah, their needs do come first and you still have needs. They're, they're, they're an infant. They need to be right. fed and you have needs. It's that and that's so important. And we're yes. not taught the and when we're, when we're raised in a household that trains it's not even teaches, right? It's trains people pleasing. Mm-hmm. And my, yeah, that's big. Yeah. And the, the sentence you pointed out, I really, you know, I really appreciate that because as you were reading it, I saw that second layer of, I couldn't be what she wanted me to be. So I'm on my own. And there is in that moment, there was a lot of sadness for me in that because I had gone out with friends when I basically had the flu because they were like, you can't not go. And I was like, okay, I guess I can't not go. And it was a terrible idea, but it, it was a necessary moment of putting me back in responsibility for my own well-being and realizing just how far off I had gone of like, you're not taking care of yourself here. You're not giving yourself the basic bare minimum. And so not that I'm, not that I'm saying it was hundred percent my fault that my friends acted No, it can be both. (laughs) There can be both. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like, in a sense, they were mirroring what I was doing to myself Mm -hmm. already. I wasn't respecting my needs in that moment. Neither were they, but I was realizing, okay, I need to shift something here. And as I change, it's amazing how I am getting different reflections back to me. We, we teach people how to treat us. I mean, there are systemic oppressions that hurt us. There are power dynamics that hurt us. And there are people who are just abusive. And yes. you name some of them beautifully. I love the simple lists that you have about like, hey, look for these things. If they're showing up, <laughs> you should pay yeah. attention to them. But there's also just the the need to recognize that we're treat, we, the way we treat ourselves our, our partners and the people in our lives, our friends will see that. And they're, they're learning because we're always learning. We're always growing. So they're learning how we want to be treated. So if we treat ourselves with care, there's an increased possibility that if we're in healthy relationships and healthy circumstances, that those relationships can become increasingly healthful and inc- increasingly delicious, mm-hmm. but it's hard to start with us. It's hard. So, and, and I love, it's just a, it's a beautiful way of putting like the responsibility is yours and we owe each other the only thing I can think of interdependence. That's it. Mm. Like that, that's so different from you owe somebody a good job or you owe them an interaction or to show up or any of those things. Yeah. But we can't really be in relationship if we're caught in those people pleasing stories. We're not even really in relationship. We're in uses. I don't know what you'd call it. Like we're in dynamics, mm. but they're not. Mm-hmm. It's not what I would call relationships. And that's all I talk about all day long. (laughs) Caroline, I'm curious what you would say today if your friends were asking you to go out while you're sick. How would you respond? 
<laughs> oh, I'm, I'm only laughing because it wasn't the same scenario, but I had a work request come through last week and it was a clear no for me. I really thought about it and I hated the feeling of what if I'm disappointing this person? What if I'm letting them down? But I knew what was right for me and for my family. And I had that, that inner clarity, which is so important because if you don't know what your priorities are and you don't know what needs your time and your attention, it is easier to just say yes when other people are asking for it. So I said, no, okay. It was received. I felt the guilt, but Another fun tip, if your guilt gauge is out of order, you can actually start recognizing the guilt as a cause for celebration. You can recognize it as, oh, look, I might actually be taking care of myself for a change because I feel terrible about this right now. So it's just a reframe, but I found that useful of, hey, just celebrate it. It's still going to be there, but you can either feel bad about it or you can look at it as a sign of progress either way. Mm -hmm. Then the request came back. It was slightly modified, but it was like, would you consider doing this variation of this thing that you just said no to? And I was like, oh, this is so gnarly because now I have to do it again. And I had to, I was actually thinking about that time where I was sick and how I didn't, I didn't stand by my no. I tried to say no, as I record in the book, it was an attempted no, but I didn't stand for it. And I was like, okay, this time we got to do it differently. We got to actually just come back. And because this was a person I trust and I respect a great deal, I said, you know, I appreciate the offer. I really, really do. I get why you're asking it. I've, I've got to say no. And I'll be a little bit vulnerable with you. Here's why. Here's what I'm, I'm dealing with right now. Here's why I don't have the bandwidth for this. And I shared that. You know, I didn't owe that person an explanation, I knew, but I felt that because of our relationship, I could share a little bit more of like, actually, no, here's why. It's because on some, on some level, I'm not well in this area and I need to take care of myself. And that's why I can't do this thing for you. And that was really well received. And I was so grateful. Um, but the short answer to your question is that I still grapple with it but I'm thankful to have learned from all the times where I was in pain and I got it wrong, so to speak, because that's the great thing about kind of being an overachiever people pleaser. It's like, if you're good enough at it, you will probably be in enough pain fairly quickly that you'll be very motivated to change. If yeah. you notice it. Yeah. If you pay attention. Yeah. yeah. That, which how, how that, that takes, I, I think on average, like 35 years. Unfortunately, unfortunately, (laughs) yes. I mean, unfortunately, but I, but that sounds actually really reasonable. Like we, we spend that first part of our life growing and developing into a, into a functioning human. You did like, Mm -hmm. well, you know, you did the work and it's going to leave some fingerprints and then you have to wipe them clean and like not own all the stuff that wasn't yours. That feels like a really normal human way to be just experiencing. Mm. I regularly need and appreciate reminders. You know, one of my best friends will just tell me, you know, look at what you're doing right now. Like, okay, you're raising a toddler. It's a pandemic. You're running a business. You're launching a book. Like she'll just list them all off to me. 
because I'll, I will have said something like, I just don't know why I feel tired or I just don't know why this. And she'll be like, let's just take a, let's take a zoomed out big picture. Look at everything. And I'm, Oh, right. Oh yes. That is normal for a human in that situation to feel those things and to feel those ways. And it sounds so simple, but it's such a gift to me when somebody just says, yeah, that sounds really human. That sounds, that sounds totally reasonable under the circumstances. Yeah. Like yeah. you said, that witness. Yes. <laughs> I think Jolie and I have that conversation every day, pretty much. Uh, yeah, about <laughs> approximately. Yeah. Like every day by text and then at least bi-weekly, an actual face-to-face Zoom something where we have to, I think it should involve whiteboards from now on. We could just keep running tallies <laughs> like, no, no, no. Um, superhuman behavior not required. And how do we know? Caroline said so. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Caroline, it's been a one, it's just a gift talking to you. And I really loved reading your book and I would love to just get the information out to our audience about where they can find the book. So do you want to tell us more about where they can grab it? Sure. Yes. Um, it is on my website, a wish come clear. You guys have a custom link. I think it's a wish come slash claim hyphen the hyphen stage, but that'll take you to the pre-order page. You can also search for it pretty much anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all of those major retailers. But if you come back to my site, there's a fun pre-order bonus that is an insane collection, basically my entire virtual library of every interview I've ever done with experts talking about perfectionism, people pleasing, all the juicy topics we've been talking about today. So would love for people to not only get the book, but get the pre-order bonuses too. Yeah. We will put a link to that in the show notes so everyone can grab it. Thanks so much for coming on the show today and sharing your wisdom and your experiences and being so candid. I know um, I got a lot out of it, so I appreciate it. (laughs) This is fantastic for me. I love this perspective and I love how many tools I just gathered to reflect back to Angela and for her to reflect back to me as we proceed on this path of not being perfectionists. Mm, Well, thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun for me and I can't wait until we talk again. Thank you. Jolie and I hope you love listening as much as we love making this show. If so, tell us by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or share it with a friend. Claim the Stage is a production of Speaker Sisterhood and is produced in the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Music is composed by Kelly Vogel of Sound Passage. All right, that does it for us this week. Until next time, stop waiting, start creating. Bye for now.